0: Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm speaking with Peter Heather. Uh, Peter is Professor of Medieval History and Chair of Medieval History at King's College in London. Uh, Much of his research and his work focuses on the later Roman Empire and many of their successor states, uh, much of the medieval period. Also also uh, done much research in the evolution of Christianity during this time and subsequently. Uh, he is the author of many books, including the most recent, Christendom, The Triumph of a Religion, A.D. 300 to 1300. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. We talk about the story of early Christianity as a story of conversion. And this is really the framework in which he... Um, has the book and really trying to see this period of history, you know, starting from um, Con- uh, Constantine's conversion to Christianity, and we talk about that process, and then all the way up into uh, 1300. We talk about what the religious landscape looked like at the end stage of the Roman Empire, and, and how Christianity was was quite small. It was only about 1% or 2% of the known world at the time. We talk about the four phases of Constantine's conversion and their importance, we talk about the essential aspects of the Council of Nicaea. We talk about uh, Augustine. We talk about Harmonian Christianity. It's the sect of Christianity in the early um, 4th and 5th centuries and how that was really, really uh, the main kind of flagship form of doing Christianity and now doesn't exist and what happened. And he talks about it at length in the book and we talk about it here in the conversation. We talk about the arrival of Islam on the world stage and how that impacted things. We talk about the spread of Christianity to the Anglo-Saxon world. We talk about Charlemagne and his uh, storied history with the popes and the papacy. We, of course, talk about the Great Schism of 1054. We talk briefly about the Crusades. And we kind of end things about talking about how Christianity became a triumph. Um, What made it uh, from a very small um, following to, you know, one of the biggest... uh, Religions in the in the world, uh, even still today, and um, there, there's some triumphant aspect of that. To whether you agree or disagree with it, it is it is quite remarkable that it has survived many, many, many things in two thousand years. Uh, Peter was absolutely wonderful to talk to. Um, his mind is incredible. He has so much information, and as you'll hear in the conversation, he's just very easily able to describe um, many you know, facts and places, but really give a nice narrative throughout this kind of running thread um, in in an important part of our anthropology and our history. And um, I I really enjoyed uh, this conversation uh, immensely. Uh, as always, you can listen to this conversation and all the conversations past and upcoming uh, at my free Substack, Converging Dialogs, at Substack.com. So get over there, subscribe, follow, tell your friends. You can also follow me on my YouTube channel, Converging Dialogs, as well, um, and and all other platforms. And so now I bring you Peter Heather. I am here with Peter Heather. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for coming on the podcast i'm uh, very much looking forward to uh talking with you
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. you know one puts one's heart and soul into these writing projects and to have people who are happy to read it and happy to talk about it. Well, that's just great
0: <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i i I think that uh, i i'm a I'm a big proponent of people that are uh Doing good work, they're creating they're writing, they're making things, and uh I get kind of exhausted and bored of people just kind of reacting and so I really like uh talking with you know scientists and scholars and historians that are um still really interested in about you know our humanity and our world and at different points and so uh I found your book uh absolutely fabulous um it is a it is a large book which I enjoy and uh it is it was really really good to hear. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about Christianity and Christendom in many ways, but this was a historical lens, which I've really grown fond of over the past couple of years. And, and you do a good job in it. The, uh, the book is called Christendom, the triumph of a religion, AD 300 to 1300. Um, is this your, this isn't your first book. This is, this is, no. you've got a few, a uh, few in the tank that you've done already. Well, how many others have you had?
1: Um, I've done probably. Half a dozen by myself, and yeah. then a couple of others with other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. wonderful. And yeah. so,
0: for, for listeners uh, that don't know who you are, uh, just kind of tell us, um, uh, you know, who you are, what your background's in, what what you usually study and research, and uh, why you wanted to
1: write this particular book. Yeah, I'm a historian um, in Oxford, where I did my degrees, my undergraduate and my doctoral degree, then modern history begins in 285 with the Emperor Diocletian. Uh, Supposedly, this is the story, because the classicists didn't want Diocletian because he was too decadent. Whether this is true, I have no idea, but that's the story as it's told. So in modern history, you could do a lot of late Roman and uh, as well as medieval, and I eventually found my way into medieval history, and I'm a professor of medieval history. Um, but I do a lot of work on the Roman Empire, on the late Roman Empire, on the unraveling of the late Roman imperial system, and in particular, the interaction between this huge empire uh, and everybody else who lives around it. That That's where the sort of general focus of my work and research has been. Um, in doing that, you always teach a lot of Christianity, so... I I've been teaching various bits of Christianity for well, <laughs> three and a bit decades. We don't need to go into specifics, <laughs> and of course, you uh, you think about it as you teach it, and um, uh, there's a lot of exciting work that's been done on Christianity. And there's a lot of source material, because of course uh, the main preservation mechanism for all of this material are medieval monks who copy things. And naturally enough, they copy a lot of Christian materials. So you can study religious history in a way that you can't always study other types of history in the medieval period. There's just more stuff to work on. And um, over time, Uh, kind of putting the two things that I'm interested in together I began to feel that there was much more to be said about the relationship between Christianity and the Roman Empire and that was really the starting point of the book that
0: uh,
1: they have tended in in my part of the woods anyway to be studied separately Uh, and I actually think that the interaction with the Roman um, Roman Empire, Roman imperial system is a very formative moment in the history of Christianity. Um, And I started from wanting to write about that and then thinking about uh, how different Christianity was as it eventually matured in the medieval period and wanting to, I mean, literally, I didn't know before I started, wanting to understand for myself um, how that evolution took place. what of the main moments within it um and then I started teaching Christianity in order to help myself write the book. <laughs> so, it's the best way. It's the best way. It is. Yeah. Get the <laughs> students to fill in the gaps for you. <laughs> there you go.
0: There you go. Write all these papers and you're, okay, this is good. Um no that's a, that's wonderful. I, I like the I like the kind of overlap there. Um what one, one of the things that you so you know, it's a big book. Obviously there's a lot of history to cover. I I have uh Two, two questions here. We'll start with the mm-hmm. first one, which is um, the the kind of way in which you uh, conceptualize the book throughout. You stated in the beginning, you stated at the end, and you kind of stated throughout is that this story of Christendom that you're trying to talk about is one of conversion and how conversion looks different at different points in those first you know thousand years, starting with the end of the Roman Empire towards the end. And then, you know, all the way up through uh, Middle Ages. So why, I'm curious, because uh, I, I think it would be important. Why did you want to look at uh, the early history of Christianity through this kind of lens or framework, if you will, of conversion? Why was that the kind
1: of conceptualization? I think it's, it, it makes a lot of sense, because if, if you think about it, at, at, at my starting point in 300 AD, then uh, I'm... a What I'm overall interested in is how the European landscape becomes Christian or the inhabitants of the European landscape become Christian. And at at the start of that period, it's a tiny, tiny percentage of the European population that's Christian. You know, most Christians in the Roman Empire don't live in Europe. They live uh, in the southern and eastern shores of the Mediterranean not on what becomes Europe at all. There there are a few Christian pockets um, in southern Spain, a little bit in some of the main cities of Gaul, what becomes France, um, and a big community in Rome. They're not, it seems, anywhere else in Italy uh, at that point. But, you know, this is, ooh, I don't know. of the European population, you know, as a percentage, it's absolutely tiny. Uh, Whereas by the finishing point, a thousand years later in 1300 AD, you've got, uh, you know, the totality of the European population, more or less. There are a few small exceptions, but have accepted uh, a Christian religious allegiance. So it really is, in the overview, is uh, a story of conversion so in that sort of simple way it is about conversion has to be about conversion but then um the slightly more sophisticated answer perhaps to your question is that when you start thinking about conversion and processes of conversion uh then it starts actually to become extremely interesting in all kinds of ways because christianity has a kind of conversion literature Uh, i think because you've got in Acts, you've got Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, a moment of archetypical conversion, a uh, blinding flash of light, literally, and a total change of life. And you have that played out in more detail, in a sense, in something like Augustine's conversions. Sorry, Augustine's Confessions, where he tells the story of this kind of 20-year process that brings him to Christianity. Uh and the you know the English translations of Augustine have they sell thousands every year. It's uh you know, it is a, a tremendous uh inspiration, I know, uh to believing Christians, uh, the Augustine's account still. But when you look at the sort of uh, broader run of the source material, uh, it equally becomes clear that uh this type of conversion is only one of the types of conversion that clearly show up in the material. And of course, because of the selection material, the, the transmission mechanism, the fact that medieval monks are copying things, um, the, the very intense religious type of conversion is uh, gets plenty of airtime in the surviving material. That's what they were interested in naturally enough but there are plenty of other conversions that look very political when you're looking at political leaderships who come into line with the religious persuasion of very powerful neighboring christian states and then you have um the uh, you know the, the more detailed evidence about conversion processes so the conversion of england the other augustine um augustine of canterbury not augustine of hippo Mm-hmm. Very important not to mix the two up, as I tell my students. Um, uh, he comes to England with a band of 30 monks, 30 people, to convert the totality of the English landscape. Um, you know, how much religion can they actually transmit? And when you look at the evidence for, for what um survives uh, what is generated there then uh, you can quite quickly baptize quite a lot of people but you can't teach them very much and the sort of process is kind of a cultural conversion uh, cultural negotiation where conversion is adding things to belief structures and religious practice that already exist so conversion uh, turns out, in many cases, not to be at all like Paul on the road to Damascus, but a much more, um, I don't want to say partial, but something that doesn't change everything, something that adds some Christian elements, bolts them on to other things. And in the process, because you're doing that and at a different stages in the history of Christianity, uh, you can see these different types of population with different uh interests and different cultural backgrounds being added into christian christianity that process of conversion tends to change christianity as well because it it adapts itself so the uh, conversion i find a very uh, interesting lens um, it's telling you about the central thing how all these people become christian but then it also gets you into the the nuts and bolts of how and why Christianity changes. Um, and also makes you think quite hard about any supposition that everyone who becomes Christian is doing so out of a very intense mm-hmm. personal change of belief or uh, that kind of process.
0: Yeah, I think that's I think that's one of the, the biggest takeaways I think from the book is is looking at how how I think for people in modern day, when you know, for for believers or or even folks that are just you know have some uh, association with Christianity, we tend to think in these very, um, you know, kind of um, very spiritual kinds of ways of conversion. And and certainly, I'm sure that did happen at various points. But uh, it's the reality of it seems to be, from a historical lens, is that the conversion looked um very very different in this kind of bolting on to other things i will just say on the on the on the percentage point <clears throat> um, because I, since you mentioned it um, you had said that there's probably 1 to 2% of of the empire in the early second century was was christian which is you know again very small a lot of people, when they read the Book of Acts and and some of the stuff books in the Bible, so you know, if folks that are unfamiliar, you know, in Acts, there's yeah. there, there's obviously right after Jesus, you know, sends to heaven, so the story goes, and you have this whole account with Paul and his conversion, road to Damascus, etc. But then the rest of the book is detailing the early church uh, in that first century, and you're having uh, Paul's various missionary journeys where he's going all around Asia Minor and all over the Mediterranean, which is, you know, modern day uh, Turkey and Greece and all these other places. And he's having these missionary journeys. And then he's, you know, he's got the, the big trip to, uh, to Rome and all these things. And, um, I feel like the impression that's left there is there was this widespread ec- expansion and explosion of Christianity, but the historical data shows us that this was still a, a very small, very small, I mean, we're talking one to 2%. Um, so what was it that... We have this one picture, but what was the, I guess the kind of religious makeup or, or the landscape of the empire at that time? Was it just pagan, you know, obviously uh, kind of organized? Uh, um, uh, Islam has not come into the picture yet. Uh, no. So
1: what did it look like, I guess, religiously, the landscape? The, the, the landscape would have been astonishingly mixed. I mean, this this Roman Empire is, I mean, it's colossal. Mm-hmm. It goes from uh, the borders of Scotland, Hadrian's Wall in Britain, to the Euphrates, you know, so Scotland to Iraq on yeah. the longest diagonal. Yeah. And uh, you've got to factor in that everything moves incredibly slowly. Mm-hmm. Um land speeds are about one twentieth of what we do in the modern day. And of course, the real measure of distance is how long it takes you or me to get from place to place. The measure in miles or kilometers is just an arbitrary thing. So uh, in fact, the empire looks big if you look at it on a modern map, but you've got to kind of multiply it by 20 Mm -hmm. in your head to get a sense of how vast this is and how far away from one another the places are. Uh, And all of these places had a very, or many of them had had a very separate history before Roman conquest and the creation of the empire. Uh, And that is reflected in the religious cultural makeup. What the Romans did was bolt on um, a required, a religious requirement, a public religious requirement, particularly for elite landowning constituent elements in provincial populations so you were required to sacrifice on the appropriate days to the capitoline cults so jupiter etc but that wasn't many days in the year you had to do that. Uh, uh, and if you wanted to get ahead in the empire, you soon had to join the imperial cult, your local or your provincial branch of it, if they would have you. Um, uh, and again, that wasn't... Uh, that that was required if you were ambitious. You didn't absolutely have to do that. Uh, but otherwise, you could do what you want. Um, there's a lovely book um, uh, called... Um, no, it's, it's either public worship and private religion, or it's uh, public religion and private worship. <laughs> I can't; my brain will never pull that out. But but it makes that point that you know if you're the most. Um, ambitious, publicly minded person in the empire, the religious requirement on you was very small as to what you had to do. You had to do that, but otherwise you could do whatever you want. And there is this astonishing multiplicity of local cults that's knocking around, um, which just shows up in um, inscriptions. Um, So uh, just in a a bit of uh, Northern Spain, for instance, Uh, what's now northern Spain, there is uh, about 300 different deities are named in Stray inscriptions. We don't know what you had to do. We don't know what they were for, (laughs) Uh, whether they were specialists in particular things like weather or crops or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, and what you had to do in return, but no idea. But the names are all there. Similarly, uh, Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, very rich in evidence. And again, you know, probably thousands overall. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, some, uh, and certain cults, uh, like the cult of Mithras, goes very well in the army. Mm-hmm. So you see some sort of, uh, that's not public and not required. So you have some public required cults, you have... Uh, some quite widespread mystery cults like Mithras, and then a million other things that would be very local and very specific.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting seeing kind of just where you all of a sudden have uh, a new, if you will, kind of religion necessary at the time. I mean, it was becoming that, a following. And then kind of this is kind of the story of how it becomes a big religion, which we'll get to. So let's talk about. <clears throat> One of the most important figures, uh, fascinating to me, is Constantine. Um, It's I was really so talking about conversion. I really was curious to see, you know, how you address this, and you're didn't disappoint. I I like your take. (laughs) Your take is good. Um, So, so you know, many people will kind of casually know that Constantine's uh, conversion to Christianity was tremendous. I mean, it was absolutely tremendous for pushing Christianity as a major religion, especially in the Roman world, and then further. Um, so this is in the fourth century. So you can talk about whatever the most important elements of his conversion are, but you talk about four distinct phases of his conversion, and that you hypothesize that he was probably always a Christian, but just very, whether this political or otherwise, carefully announced each kind of thing in kind of these phases. So maybe just say what was important about his conversion and just kind of walk us through these four phases of his conversion.
1: Yeah. What you have to remember is that when he comes to power, when he's uh, made ruler of, uh, well, basically a bit of Britain where his father has just died, um, that the Roman Empire is in the last of its anti-Christian persecutions. Um, And uh, this is the great persecution, the great Tetrarchic persecution of the early years of the fourth century. Um, And that's pursued with different degrees of vigor in different places. But, you know, Christianity is prescribed and is being persecuted. Um, the phases of his, it's really the phases of his presentation of his religious self to the empire. That's what you can measure. Uh, And that shows up in his coinage, and it shows up in public pronouncements. Um, There are, and as you said, there are four of them. The first one, he comes to power in 306. First one lasts down to about 310. uh, And that is straightforwardly uh, orthodox, tetrarchic, pagan, So he just uh, follows the existing religious line uh, in his presentation of his religious position. 310, we got the first change. And uh, he starts putting Sol Invictus, the unconquered sun, on his coinage. And uh, an official spokesman at his court speaking in front of him uh, reports that he'd had a vision of Apollo, who was equated with the sun god. Mm -hmm. And the sun god is sort of a symbol for... Uh, By this stage, uh, a lot of educated um, pagan opinion in the empire felt that there was a single divine force behind all the other kind of gods, that all the others were emanations of this single uh, monotheistic religious force, and that the sun is the symbol of that. So it's kind of nodding in the direction of... slightly newfangled, but actually very now very widely accepted vision of a a pagan monotheistic system uh, where all the other gods are subordinate to and actually derive their power from the single uh, central force. And that is not what the tetrarchs had said during the persecution period, so this is a major break. at, at that point, he's still notionally persecuting Christians. The next change comes in three twelve uh, when uh, we don't when he with the uh, the then co ruler in the east, they uh, produce a degree of toleration which ends the persecution and at that point, in most public contexts, Constantine is still. Banging on about solar monotheism and sol invictus is the most common uh, design on his coinage. But in a few contexts, and we don't know how widely known they were because it's only little bits of evidence that survive, he was willing to talk about himself as a Christian to other Christians. He writes to bishops in North Africa uh, and talks about uh, sharing a religion with them. And this Cairo monogram. Um, which is you know, Christ's initials in Greek, the, the, the first two letters of Christ in Greek, that appears on a very few places, a couple of inscriptions, a couple of very rich, uh, very expensive coin issues of which very few survive. Then finally, from 324 onwards, he comes out as Christian to the, tot- to the entirety of the empire Sol Invictus still stays on the coinage because uh, Christians had got were happy with the idea that Sol could also be a metaphorical symbol of the Christian God as the single supreme divine force in the cosmos. That was all right, so we keep Sol Invictus, but we uh, his public pronouncements. Uh, describe him as Christian and he's happy to talk about himself as Christian. This is when he calls the first council of Nicaea of all Christian bishops in the world as he understood it. But what's, uh, to my mind, the the thing that's really interesting that hasn't been spotted so much is that each of these changes in 310, then in 312, and then again in 324, they all follow a thumping great victory over a set of rivals, a rival or several rivals for the imperial power. When he comes to power, there are six other emperors dotted across the Roman world. In 324, he defeats uh, Licinius, the final rival with whom he declared toleration in 312, becomes the sole ruler, reuniting the Roman Empire for the first time, and goodness knows how long, in a political generation. And it's at that point uh, that he comes out as completely Christian. Uh, so, so the story is uh, is partly one of uh, him feeling safe to declare his Christian allegiance. Um, uh, winning victories over imperial rivals is like winning Election victories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's exactly you know. Yes. Uh, after that, after that moment of victory, that's when you do all the difficult stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately after the election, before the next one, mm-hmm. is, is when you put out all the bad news, uh, okay. uh, get it out there as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, uh, but with, uh, but in spades in the Roman world, because victory comes from God. So, uh, as far as the Romans are concerned, so the ideology says. God intervenes very directly in this world. So anyone who wins is meant to win. By the time Constantine has emerged from this uh, winner-take-all struggle with five other imperial contenders, you can only conclude that God is on Constantine's side. So whichever God it is that he's giving his allegiance to, there's gotta be the right one. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> And at that moment, it's incredibly safe for him or as safe as it could possibly be for him to declare a Christian allegiance.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really instructive point, because I think myself included, just like, oh, there was a conversion, and then things started to move. And I think tying it to sort of, if you will, you know, their their victories, but they have some political, you know, elements there as well, makes it's a more robust picture, and it makes a lot more sense. And I guess the the question there is, you know, obviously, as you were mentioning in the beginning was... You know, there's a big distance and and things move slowly across the the empire. You know, what did, I'll come back to to Nicaea in a minute, but what was it about then that in the fourth, and then I guess going into the fifth century, how did conversion to Christianity look like then? Like, how did this kind of, there's this like an immediate domino effect of like, okay, well, you know, our emperor is doing this. Uh you know, okay, so now you know how did it move with Roman elites and then with common folk? How did the kind of ripple effect happen for conversion to Christianity across the empire?
1: Yeah, there's precious little evidence for um mass conversion um the vast majority of the population i mean this is an agricultural economy with no tractors, so nearly everybody's a nearly everybody's a peasant and they have to be a peasant. Uh, of course, peasants are very widely dispersed, particularly in northern Europe. Um, the Mediterranean, you get more dense clusters of fertile soil and then very barren stuff. So, population is a bit more concentrated in those kind of Mediterranean uh, contexts. But, you know, Britain, pretty much everywhere, is fertile. So, everyone is everywhere and everyone is spread out. But there's there's no sign that Christianity really develops uh, a structure of dispersed rural worship sites or trained priests going out into the countryside in the fourth and fifth century in the Roman period. And in fact, we have quite a lot of evidence, both in the eastern half of the empire and in now the post-Roman West from the sixth century, that bishops are starting to address the problem of how the hell do we get Christianity into these vast rural uh, expanses that we haven't reached before, but it is sixth century, uh, and, and the evidence is really quite consistent on that, um, which does make one think that, um, it's not an absence of evidence from the fourth and fifth century. It really is that we hadn't got that far. We hadn't got that far with the project yet. Um, in the fourth and fifth centuries, uh, we have two constituencies that where there is a much bigger uptake of Christianity. Um, One is urban populations, and maybe 10% of the population lives in towns, something like that. And that's where Christian communities that did exist before Constantine's conversion, that's where they were mostly located. There's a little bit of penetration into the countryside in some parts of North Africa and Egypt and Asia Minor, but it doesn't look as though it was very extensive, really. Uh, So most functioning Christian communities are in these urban centers, um, and they get bigger. And then the other place, which is where we get all the noise from, uh, in terms of texts and people worrying about religion and writing about it, is amongst the educated landowning elite of the Roman world, those who participate in the public life of the empire. Um, And there we get Uh, a lot of literature in the 4th and 5th century, as they think about, well, what does it mean to become Christian, how much of our traditional lives have to change, and so uh, mass conversion, not much in the Roman period, but um, urban populations and members of the elite, yeah, quite a lot. Yeah, yeah.
0: So tell us about uh, Nicaea. I mean, this is huge. I mean, people still recite, I think, the Nicene Creed, and you know, and, and but there was there was a lot of importance there. I mean, obviously, the creed is what people know, but there was also other things, uh, how we have Easter, the holiday, and how it was moved, and many other things that you mentioned. So just tell us what was the the kind of you know kind of the big, if you will, a sort of council of sorts of you know in the world of of how important this was right after this uh, Constantine's conversion. <clears throat>
1: I think the way to think about it is that um, up to that point, Christianity had existed in a series of regional communities um, that weren't often uh, in touch with one another. Um, So you had a big one in Rome. There's a a fairly large one in North Africa around Carthage. There's uh, an Egyptian one, Um, obviously uh, Syria-Palestine in Roman terms, the, what's now Israel, big chunk there, and and some in Asia Minor, only a few in Greece, I think. Um, these were very distant from one another, and their contact with one another was very periodic. Um, they did things differently from one another. They expected to run themselves. They're autonomous and local. And that was a context which allowed for... Um, very wide differences in practice in terms of what festivals were being celebrated and when, and clearly some differences in belief too. They they got as far as agreeing on the canon of the New Testament pretty much by the year 200. Everyone is following pretty much the same texts. We know that there was a much bigger uh, body of material from which they make the selection that is the New Testament. But they've done it by the year 200, and it stays fairly consistent. There are some minor differences mm-hmm. between the, the regions, but they, you know only four Gospels, not the other 12 <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that have different things to say that, that turn up. And the particular epistles of Paul and a few other letters and Acts and the one revelation, although there were uh, quite a lot of Christian communities that were a bit worried about whether uh, the revelation of St. John uh, should be in the New Testaments or not. That, that's the one that I'm talking about. <laughs> but even if, accepting those texts, that's still licensed uh, quite a wide variety. Uh, and in particular, of course, what's distinctive and particular about Christianity uh, is this, ast- to Greek terms, and if you think about it more generally, astonishing claim that Christ is both God and man. What is that? How does that work? How how can a single person be both the ultimate divine power in the universe and uh, a living, breathing human being like you or me? And they all thought that he was, but they didn't go too much further in terms of trying to tie down what that really meant and how it worked and what this meant. Um, and it had slightly different models, you know, were you, was Christ giving you a model of human behavior to follow? Is that how you were saved or are you saved by the fact that the supreme divinity was willing to die on a cross, uh, which is a very different model of salvation. One is uh, an explosion of divine power, uh, washing away sin, or is it actually uh, a model uh, an inspirational model for everyone to change their lives. So there were issues there and that clearly had not been resolved. So Nicaea does or starts a process. It brings everyone together for the first time and it creates a new model with the idea that we should come together. We should come together regularly whenever there's a big issue. That's what we must do. And that's how it should be resolved. So um, the next big council, uh, Is uh, about 20 years later. Uh, And there's a whole series of councils in the late Roman period. Nicaea creates that model. It starts a process of sorting out the belief areas that had uh, not been sorted out. In particular, I mean, you're quite right to mention the Creed. What we say is actually the Creed of Constantinople from 382, not the Creed of Nicaea, although it's called the Nicene Creed. Uh, but it's it's the first attempt, uh, Nicaea was the first attempt to lay down a positive creed. Previously, Christianity had uh, defined what things were not admissible mm-hmm. and left a kind of big mainstream where uh, you didn't worry as long as you weren't this, this at one extreme or that at the other extreme, it didn't matter. But the Nicene Creed... And the Constantinopolitan Creed, which is what we actually say, are attempts, or more very successful attempts, to lay down specifics of what we must believe, not things that we must avoid, mm-hmm. and that's that's very different. So it starts that process, but it also starts processes of um, consolidating how we're going to calculate Easter, while you know uh, moving away from because. It's closely tied to Passover in the gospel narratives, but moving it away from Passover and the Jewish dependency uh, and also key things about um, behavior and discipline in terms of just how perfect should Christians be uh, what is required of you do you have to live like apostles uh, can ordinary people who uh, don't feel able to um tie themselves to that level of disassociation with the normal things of life. So, you know, families uh, making a living, you know, making a comfortable living, uh, the normal wealth of uh, of worldly success, can you still be saved? And it, it has to address those things as well, um, uh, as well as... How bishops are going to be elected, how communities are going to be organized. So uh, I think it's, uh, I think two things are going on. Uh, uh, We've created a new mechanism for resolving all of these kinds of issues, uh, but but then there are a series of issues to be resolved. A whole set that are generated by the fact that we're able to come together now for the first time. Mm -hmm. So we assumed we were all doing the same thing. Now we realize we're not. So what is the right thing for us to do? Uh, What's the right thing for us to believe? Those kinds of things. And then new issues that are created uh, by the flood of converts that comes in from Roman elites and urban populations, larger urban populations. Um, what is Christianity? What does good Christianity look like in this new world that's created by that, by that process of conversion?
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's obviously so, so important for, for, for history and for, for Christian history um also important uh we don't have to spend too much time on him uh, I, i've talked to him about him in other places but uh he's obviously huge Is uh i i believe uh, you guys say over there across the pond augustine we, we say augustine here over here yes. on this side <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously his you mentioned it earlier his confessions were were a big deal obviously city of god's a big deal um but i guess though you mentioned this this counter story of uh, pe- Pegasus. Is is that my saying this right? Yeah, Pegasus. Yes. Yeah, which was curious. Uh, so maybe just we can. I mean, obviously you can just kind of give the the general overview of why um, Augustine was yeah. was important as an early you know, church father. But really, kind of this counter, which I thought was really interesting, how you brought that in there.
1: Pegasius is my very favorite person in the entirety of late Roman history. Uh, He's just fantastic. Um, We hear about him in this uh, stray letter of the Emperor Julian, who is uh, a cousin of Constantine, who is the Christian Roman Emperor who then reverts to paganism in in the, in the 350s and we hear about him because Pegasios at that point is bishop of Ilios troy in uh, modern turkey the, the great site of the trojan war etc and julian wanted to visit the sites of the trojan war because uh, homer is treated uh, is read metaphorically in the later Roman period as a kind of Bible in terms of God's appearing on earth, making things happen, uh, right behaviors for humankind in relation to divine powers, all of those things. So he wants to go there and he, but Julian's heard that this Bishop Pegasios has dismantled all the pagan temples that used to be there to Hector and Achilles, et cetera. He goes there, uh, and, Pagasius turns up and gives him a guided tour, and lo and behold, the temples have not been dismantled. The temples are all in full functioning order. Uh, Candles lit, olive oil chucked around the whole nine yards, Uh, they're still functioning. And then we hear about him because when Julian becomes emperor and tries to restore paganism, he tries to create a kind of parallel pagan priesthood um, to match Christian priesthood. And hierarchies, <laughs> and lo and behold, Pagasius applies for a job in it. So uh, the local bishop of Ilios now applies for a job in Julian's pagan priesthood, and that's full stop. We never hear anything else. We don't know what else happens. Uh, uh, so I mean, what on earth did Pagasius believe? Um. Was he always a pagan who pretended to be a bishop? Did he not see a problem about it? Uh, I suspect it's more the latter. Uh, but, you know, we think, uh, we tend to think that Augustine, Augustine is the kind of model of the late Roman elite conversion, but is he? Are there more uh, Augustines than there are Pegasioses? Uh I think it's very unclear that that's true. Um, the best guess, and there's a very dedicated line of f- French Catholic scholars who go through all this with a fine tooth comb, is that there are 1,800 cities in the empire, of which maybe 600 had a bishop at the time of Constantine's conversion, so one third. But the other 1,200 quickly acquire bishops. So, you know, where have these 1,200 come from? Mm. I take it that's the context for Pegasios being Bishop of Ilios. Mm. There's a vacancy here for a very interesting position to run an important part of your local society. Okay, Mm. I'll have that. Thank you very much. (laughs) And now it becomes be the pagan priest of it. Okay, that's fine. I can do that. That's all right. (laughs) But if if in these 1,200... Uh, cities of the empire that didn't have an organized Christian community, a constant conversion. It's mostly people like Pegasios who are taking the new jobs that have become available. Then this really changes our picture of what Christianity is like. <laughs> it,
0: it absolutely does because I, I, uh, I, I have this ongoing question at different points, even currently in different ways, of how much is is you know, if you want to say the true believers for various ideology, right? There are certainly people, you know, I think, you know, Augustine was one of them, other folks, absolutely, you know, but I think there's also folks that are probably just going along to get along. This is what we're doing now. This is okay. This has a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, um, advantageous, you know, kind of outlook for me. I can have this position, et cetera. Fine, whatever. I'll go with it. And I wonder kind of what you're saying it gives a different outlook. I think we tend to myself included t- this idea of you know Christian zealots going across all of Asia Minor and to Europe and just like you know just proselytizing. And that certainly did happen, not to say that didn't happen. Absolutely. But that it this wasn't a, a, a full-blown uh you know organized at, at these moments kind of thing. Obviously, we get to the papacy and all that stuff, which we'll we'll talk we'll talk about. But there's for a while it was it was varied, and it's it's very interesting. that's why I really liked this part of your um this chapter is is that it illustrates a little bit more broadly just what early Christianity looked like uh, in in the in the third and fourth century. So I thought it was it was really instructive uh, to
1: to to bring up here, and so i'm I'm glad you you mentioned it we're We're very lucky. I mean, this is the uh, a sort of active literacy is part and parcel of the cultural formation of Roman elites they're trained to write Mm -hmm. so they write a lot so we do get that's why there's so much stuff Mm -hmm. and so much variety of behavior illustrated um i I suspect that that variety is there in every era it's just they're not so Mm -hmm. literate so they don't write about it so much Mm -hmm. Uh, and so yeah i agree yeah so another another
0: big component I was I was very ignorant of and I was very fascinated was this uh, I'm going to say this wrong Hominian Christianity how do you say this
1: Yes yeah Homoian Homoian, Homoian yes. Christianity They didn't teach you about that in seminary No I, didn't, I did not get that <laughs> I didn't get that, that that I missed that
0: lecture I didn't get that one <laughs> So I was reading this for the first time and I was like what What is this And it was it was really Important and like things could have looked a lot different. So just kind of tell us, you know, what what it was, how widespread it was, and how it became almost lost to to history. So and you can bring up any players or subcategories there, but yeah, tell us about about this aspect.
1: Yeah, it's part of the variety that's that's out there Uh, because uh, at the at the time that Constantine because you've got the gospel texts that describe the relationship of God, the Father, and God, the Son, that illustrate it. Uh, and actually, if you don't come to it with preconceptions, they pull in two different directions. On the one hand, you've got the opening of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You know, so the commonality, uh, the very intense, tight, equal relationship, God, the Father, God, the Son. On the other hand, you've got the synoptic gospels and particularly bits, moments like Christ praying in the garden of Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. It's very human, but he also says, not my will be done, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that doesn't sound like the Nicene Creed. And the sort of, it is the existence of these, uh, equally canonical texts that pull in different directions that license early Christian believers to think a variety of things about how God and man is combined in Christ and therefore what the relationship is between Christ or between God, the son and God, the father. Um, and that is clearly where the variety, the, the, the really crucial variety in belief terms exists in the Christian communities of 320, when Constine is just becoming Christian, there's clearly a wide variety out there. They construe this in different ways. Basically, you either have to uh, explain the synoptic texts away in uh, in terms that make them compatible with John, or you have to do it the other way around and there's, there's a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics that goes on to, to make those absolutely absolutely and you go raiding weird bits of the old testament that yeah. don't have anything to do with it in order to provide a kind of uh reading uh, a metaphorical reading and they say yes but in jeremiah it says right. and this means that you know um it clearly didn't mean anything of the sort but uh you have to do that um but uh Nicaea went for the the sort of John John Max reading of Christ uh, 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 as God the Son and the very close consubstantial uh, relationship of one substance uh, with the Father. And a lot of Christians... uh, felt that that didn't do justice to everything that was in the Synoptic Gospels, um, clearly at the time. And we get a counter-reaction. The reason why what we actually say is the creed of Constantinople from the early 380s is that it takes 60 years to resolve this argument, actually. Um, uh, And for a big chunk of it, 30 years, uh, an alternative creed. Uh, where Christ is still God and man, but is subordinate to the Father. So a trini- it's it's still Trinitarian, but it's a hierarchical Trinity rather than an equal Trinity. Because uh, if you only had the Synoptic Gospels, that what that's what you'd come up with. Right. You know, if John didn't exist, the Gospel of John didn't exist. It would be that. So, you know, this is, uh, it's not a bonkers reading, <laughs> uh, but th- that, that's what Hermoian Christianity is, uh, uh, a hierarchical trinity um, where Christ is still God, but is uh, subordinate to the Father as sons are often, well, my sons aren't, but the sons are supposedly subordinate to fathers. <laughs> <laughs> no one told mine, but, you know, <laughs> that's the traditional image. <laughs> uh, that, that is official Orthodox Roman Christianity for 30 years. Um, and it's a vision of Christianity that's then transmitted to uh, some of the groups that come in to the empire, like the Goths, i worked so much on at different times in my past, um, who then formed successor states to the Roman Empire. And there's a moment at which nearly all the successor states of the Western Empire uh, are dominated by uh, ex-barbarian royal dynasties who are Hermoian Christians. Um, so it was official Roman orthodoxy in the middle of the 4th century, and it almost looks like it might become the official religious orthodoxy of the post roman west in around about the year 500 so so what happens i mean if it was widespread and people were believing
0: this you say it almost becomes lost to history again it's, it's not very very common knowledge for a lot of people what what happened where it just kind of almost faded? what what was i mean maybe you're talking it might be too in the weeds but you talk about the the visigoths and the then you talk about various groups here of of people that were believing this or espousing this what what's the i guess the story there <clears throat>
1: The story has two components. One, the the final group in the uh, kingdom forming group in the West choose Nicene Christianity rather than Homoian Christianity, and that's the Franks. This is Clovis and his baptism. Uh, and secondly, um, for a generation under the Emperor Justinian, uh, Constantinople has the breathing space and the military capacity to intervene again in the Western Mediterranean. And Justinian destroys two of the key Homoian kingdoms, the Ostrogothic kingdom in Italy and the Vandal Allen kingdom in North Africa. Um, The Franks destroy the Homoian Burgundian kingdom. They're now Nicene Orthodox too. And that just leaves the Visigoths left. And the rest of the Christian world uh, is Nicene Christian, the idea that Homoian Christianity is the real Orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. I think, loses all its force. Because mm-hmm. Samoan Christianity didn't ever want to be a sect. It wanted to be Christianity and claimed yeah. it was yeah. right Christianity. Um, uh, and when everybody else is doing something else, that kind of claim becomes very difficult to sustain. You start to look ridiculous. Um, and, uh, you know, Justinian had... A, a, this is a world which still thinks that God intervenes directly on the field of battle. So Justinian wiped out these two Hermoian kingdoms in his reconquest. If you're trying to decide, well, which is the right Christian belief in the sixth century, the proof of the pudding was in the victories that Justinian won on the battlefield. Yeah.
0: It's interesting, you know, for, for listeners, if they if they want to do a deep dive into this and they want to look at some of the doctrinal issues. Um, it's it's interesting to look up in, in terms of canonization, uh, this uh, kind of Q document, which still uh, 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 is is puzzling for many, many uh, textual critics of of uh, biblical scriptures. Uh, Q document was a, a, a basically a source material, original source material. We don't really know. Some people thought it's the Gospel of Thomas or another gospel. There's a kind of debate there, but it was basically the source of, I believe, uh, many of Jesus' sayings. That was used to create the gospel of Matthew and Luke, but not Mark if I remember correctly and I don't think John so there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the weeds there on the kind of doctrinal you know kind of canonization stuff which is also fascinating it reminds me of some of this stuff of you know what is the true because it, it has it <clears throat> the importance of this while it's fun to study that is the doctrinal issue here of when you're talking about I mean the Trinity is the I mean core of you know Christian belief you know whichever yes, absolutely. So, you know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but having a, a, a hierarchical kind of uh, a way of looking at this, as opposed to all are the same and all are equal, but also have roles at the same time. It's it's still something that is a as a concept almost feels nonsensical if you're trying to use logic. But there's many of these other elements of it, and so it's it's it is a hard thing to 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 really wrap your head around. But um, I I like this kind of history here. I really liked it in, in the book because it really gives a again a broader uh, scope of um what it is about christianity at that time and the, the impact of you know different regions and and, and how conflict would, would would occur and what that would mean um so yeah so it's, it's very very important okay so let's jump to uh to uh to islam i I want to ask you about this cuz i i also just didn't register it at the time so one thing i i, I, I don't uh, I have a lot of history on on, on Islam. Most people know, uh, the, you know, the story of Muhammad. They know the story of mm-hmm. going up to heaven on, on the horse and the whole thing. And bringing all the scriptures down and all that stuff. What was, I guess, the precursors for um, Islam? Was it just this was the moment and then there was nothing? There was no precursors there that, you know, people in that region were... Uh, believing some of the kind of the more pagan kinds of gods or, or religions, um, but once Islam does come uh, to to the scene and, and as a religion, how does then this totally uh, influence that part of the world in Mesopotamia, uh, the Roman Persian world, and uh, and and what the domination from many Arab states are at the time
1: uh, were contributing there? I, it's a fantastically interesting. Um, passage of history, um, the, you, you've got a kind of mythological problem, which is that all the lives of Muhammad date from the ninth century. So uh, 200 years plus after his death. Uh, and as always happens at that point, they're writing that Muhammad it suits what they're doing in the ninth century. The one earlier block of material is the Quran, which is clearly 7th century and much older How that was collected, what its original form was, uh, is much disputed, and I'm not an expert to have an original opinion on that. But as as a a kind of reader uh, of that text, the thing that jumps out at you is how little it refers to anything that's not Judeo-Christian. There's the the famous uh, satanic verse that got Salman Rushdie into so much trouble, which mentions three pre Islamic Arabian deities uh, of a pagan kind, and that's it. Otherwise, Muhammad is starting uh, the sayings, or the angel Gabriel is, you know, that's not for me to say, uh, from uh, stories from the Old and New Testament. And that doesn't make any sense unless the audience that he was uh, looking to speak to and uh, mobilize knew these stories. Mm. Um, uh, and when you go looking for it, there's actually plenty of evidence that uh, Judeo Christian monotheism in various forms, sometimes Jewish, sometimes Christian, sometimes odd amalgams of the two had been spreading through the Arabian peninsula in the late Roman period, um, between the fourth and the sixth centuries. Um, uh, and it has to be, otherwise the Quran would not make any sense. <laughs> no one would know what he was talking about. What? Who? Adam? Who's that? You know, Abraham? What? Yeah. You know,
0: and there's uh, many, many, many references to to Jesus. If I remember, yes, I could be wrong on absolutely. this. I, I think there's more references to Jesus in the Quran than Muhammad. I could be wrong on that, but there's a no, lot. No, there is a tremendous amount. He's highly referenced.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, Islam itself. It is another uh, Abrahamic religion, and its self-presentation is very similar to that of Christianity in terms of being the new souped-up improved version of Judeo-Christian religion. Um, Further revelation, uh, we got it nearly right before, but this is it right. Um, uh, And that cultural context of uh, Judeo-Christian cultural expansion in Arabia is necessary, I think. To explain how this could could take hold um, uh, it, I mean it has its uh, moment of luck <laughs> in a sense yeah. uh, in in the sense that the Persians and East Romans fought themselves into bankrupt mm. uh, immobility with about um, their their undertaking essentially full-scale world war for about 45 out of 50 years immediately prior to uh, Mohammed's uh, or the explosion out of Arabia of uh, Islamic power. And that clearly created a power vacuum that uh, mm. the military capacity the Arabs is able to move into. And if it hadn't done that, you wonder, could it have worked uh, in fact? But it did. And of course, if you're a true believer, then, you know, uh, Allah made it happen. That's you know, it's a, most of the time, Persia and, and Constantinople got on in a kind of way. They hadn't blown out into this kind of world war of total confrontation, but they fight each other to a standstill, uh, and this allows uh, Islam to take over. And we're still uh, with a series of very fast conquests. Basically, I think because both empires are bankrupt and can't afford armies anymore. Um, but we're, you know, we're really in this world where it is uh, a doctrine, and accepted by all parties, that the divine will is manifest in political events. So, uh, if you're sitting in the Eastern Mediterranean in 700, the fact that Islam has come from nowhere to take to totally destroy the Persian empire and take over three quarters of the Byzantine East Roman empire, uh, you're concluding that the functioning deity here is in fact Allah as described by Islam. That's the only logical conclusion. Um, so in the same way that Constantine's victory sparks a process of particularly elite conversion uh, to start with, we see Islam uh, and its successes sparking an absolutely analogous process of elite conversion, to start with. Um, and It's something that I've thought about quite a lot. Uh, Elites are involved in the public life of these states, and as the public life of these states switches from one ideological position to another, and uh, maintaining your position or being successful requires you to come into line with this ideological position that is now dominant, you're faced with a very difficult choice. Um, Elites are very vulnerable in that extent. Uh, By virtue of being elite, then they've got a lot to lose, and you have to be a very determined pagan in the Roman case or a very determined Christian in the Islamic world to hold on to your faith when that means losing most of the basis of your elite status. I mean, it's exactly the same as the English gentry at the time of Henry VIII and Elizabeth, where most of them come on board, and a few very, very rich Catholic nobles stay Catholic Mm -hmm. because they can afford to, and they'll pay fines, and they're allowed to. You know, there's always someone who doesn't, but the majority do. Yeah,
0: there's this interesting kind of uh, parallel between conversion and and conflict and 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 uh and triumph, if you will. It's like, well, the, you know, this person's God must have helped them win. So here we go. We're gonna, you know, believe this. And it's a very interesting. And at that time, I guess you could that would make a lot of sense. Um yeah. so I just... think
1: it's the main <laughs> it's it's the main leap of imagination you have to make back mm-hmm. into the yeah. past that that actually that's there. Mm-hmm. And no one questions it. Whereas yeah. we would, you know, we don't generally think that. I think most of us don't think that way now. There are exceptions,
0: right? So, so let's. Uh, I guess let's jump ahead here. I guess a little bit is, um, you know, so Christian, you know, you've got Islam coming online uh, into the world, if you will, and 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 taking, you know, kind of, you know. Uh, the right time, right place in terms of these certain conflicts. But <laughs> Christianity was still spreading and it spreads to the Anglo-Saxon world, which is what you what you talk about. And there's this whole idea of um, how the Western Western Europe uh, embraced Christianity, this role of missionaries, um, and and how this was, you know, in this kind of post-Roman period now, as we're coming out of you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, Christian, there's a type of Christian commonwealth that's going on. So just kind of explain the spread of Christianity to Western Europe, Anglo-Saxon kind of world and and
1: what that looked like. Yeah, just a a brief postscript on Islam. The the reason why, I mean, it's very interesting in itself, but the other thing that's really crucial about it is that the bulk of the Christian world up until 700 is actually not European at all. The bulk of the Christian world is uh, Southern and Eastern Mediterranean and its hinterlands. Uh, And the rise of Islam is kind of crucial uh, for the characteristic association between Christianity and Europe. Because otherwise, we wouldn't think of Christianity as a European phenomenon. It would be uh, a Near Eastern phenomenon that had some some European outliers. So uh, in a sense that the, the two things go together, the, the pivot, the missionary pivot into the North, into uh, Britain and so on, that is uh, happening simultaneously with the loss of so many of the old Christian heartlands, because all the, apart from Rome, all the old uh, Christian communities are swallowed up by Islam. So, the the Europeanness of Christianity is created by Islam, which is kind of you know, <laughs> it's a simple point, but it's worth making. Um, the yeah, the we then see a slow, a very slow incremental conversion uh, process um, up to seven hundred. It's barely going further than the old frontiers of the Roman Empire. And you for an overtly missionary religion, Christianity's missionary enthusiasms come and go, quite surprisingly, it's a point made by one of my colleagues, which is very well made. It's not mine at all, that a lot of the time, Christians feel no need to to travel to weird and wild places like Scandinavia to try and convert people. Uh, That's fine. We'll stay here. That's okay. Uh, And in fact, they've got another conversion process that they're unraveling at the same time, which is how to transmit Christianity to this peasant population, because it is at the moment that the missionaries are going to Britain, that is the same time that they're, we're getting these initiatives to try and spread Christianity into the countryside. Uh, and they're kind of, um, I see them as kind of two parallel processes which between them create kind of characteristic, typical medieval Christianity, the conversion of warriors, warrior elites in places like Britain, and then also the, uh, retooling of Christianity to appeal to um, peasant populations in the in the ex Roman countryside
0: it's interesting how there's this with this spread there's there's more and more of coming from just elites and now to more common folk, but then there's still this kind of uh, positioning with <laughs> I don't want to say violence, but certain things of conflict, of how there's this appeal here, which is which is really interesting. So we'll come to the crusades in a minute, because obviously you talk about that. But I want to talk about uh Charlemagne. I mean Charlemagne yeah. is is is, uh, is is a huge, 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 huge figure. Uh how he wrestles with the, the papacy, what his relationship was with the Pope, all of these things. Maybe talk us about his concept of empire. Um, how he had a relationship with you know the, the Pope and this kind of conversion by conquest model that you talk about?
1: Yeah, um, Charlemagne clearly has the late Roman imperial ideology uh, firmly in mind, um, and that is that emperors are appointed by God, and because they're appointed by God, and they exercise a geographical authority that is uh, much wider in scope than any other figure that's around, they are ultimately responsible for um, the fate of the religion under their care, and they have to answer to God for this. So all these great councils of the late Roman period had all been called by emperors. No one else had the authority to do it. Uh, emperors were responsible for making the agendas of councils for enforcing their decisions for making a lot of law that governed um how episcopal elections were going to be run and all, all these kinds of things they're all they're all in late roman law codes because emperors had supreme religious authority not just because they were big and nasty with large biceps, but because people thought they should be in charge because Mm. God had made them Mm. this ruler. And Charlemagne's imperial ideology is absolutely in that cast. His problem is that uh, (laughs) uh, God chooses emperors. So uh, he, he was pretty clear that he was an emperor, I think, from the moment he conquers Italy, because he's putting back together a big chunk of what used to be the Western Empire. And he's pretty clear that his authority is imperial, but he can't have himself declared emperor because that would be a sign that you weren't worthy of the office. It's God who declares emperor. Um, And as far as I can see, and the detailed evidence suggests this very strongly, um, he has to wait for a moment when he can elbow the Pope into mounting the imperial coronation. He's wanted, you know, there's this story that if he'd gone into St. Peter, if he'd known what was going to happen uh, in St. Peter's on Christmas Day at 100, he'd have never gone in. Well, that's just that same trope that a true emperor would always avoid the office. It has to be inevitable because it's God's choice, it's not your choice. Mm-hmm. If you have the ambition to be emperor, you're clearly not worthy of the office. It's a pretty good principle, actually. And I think a lot of our politicians could really learn from it, frankly. It's a calling. You have to be called, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But he has to wait until he's got something on the Pope and the Pope owes him. uh, And then they set up this coronation. Um, And it's very striking that when it comes to declaring his sons uh, to be the next emperors, he does it himself. The Pope goes nowhere near it. Is not involved in the process. So he needed the Pope to kickstart the new line, the new imperial line, but that's it. Uh, end of story. And when you look at the very important um, processes of reform that Charlemagne starts within the church, really uh, about re equipping Christianity with a set of religious training centers uh, that all work in the same way, that have the same. Uh, religious and educational curricula that restore a unity to, or actually probably create it, I don't think it really existed in the Roman world, but for the first time create a Latinate, a Latin church Mm. that is using uh, the same service books um, uh, and teaching people in the same way, reading the same texts, understanding the Christian texts in the same way. Um, All of that all of the initiative for that comes from the imperial court. Rome is not involved in that process. Uh, Rome is uh, entirely marginal in the Carolingian period, uh, and no one thinks that Rome should be in charge of that. Rome is a great place for pilgrimage, great center of prestige, um, all the best relics there. Um, it'd be very nice to have the Pope rubber stamping things and just saying how good it is, but all the actual action that happens at the imperial court and it really does that i mean that is what the evidence shows us all the manuscript evidence and uh, where scholars go to work and to be trained and all the rest of it so it's uh, Char- like trying to centralize everything so centralize or yes. streamline
0: everything centralize it create this hierarchy get everybody on the same page uh of yeah. sorts.
1: A- absolutely i mean churchmen are putting a lot into this agenda it's not that charlemagne thinks it all up uh, but he's ready to listen to churchmen who've got this an, this agenda to make Western Christianity a, a real cultural unity, um, to, to work as a, a proper unified religious system. Um, uh, so uh, it's not that, I mean, pe- people used to think and argue that he'd come up with it all himself. And that isn't, that's clearly not the case, but uh, all the churchmen are coming into his court and they're talking to him and they're getting him to do the, uh, do the necessary arm twisting and provide the cash. It's very expensive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so- someone's got to pay for the bills, right? Yeah. Um, building <laughs> and books. I mean, bloody hell, both yeah. of those cost a fortune. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um
0: so what, what was the, again, the, I guess the the role, how did the role of the papacy evolve during Charlemagne's reign? And as we look from the ninth to, you know, the 12th centuries, you know, kind of, you know, as you get towards the end of where where you uh, finish the book, or, you know, but kind of what's this kind of evolution as we, as the papacy evolves and it becomes the the central, you know, uh, big hierarchical establishment and and very, very powerful. How do we get that kind of beginnings and then all the way up to the kind of where it's at?
1: I think it's a really interesting story. Mm -hmm. And it's the story that, uh, you know, I'm a late Roman historian and an early medieval historian in my original training. So, I I mean, maybe I I suppose people who work in the period, in the later period, understood it perfectly well. But it's the bit of the story that really surprised me as I started to research and write about this. And that is that um, although you do have occasional popes, who make very grandiose statements about their own authority. The actual process that you see, which involves the transfer from emperors and kings of various powers to Rome, so the right to call big councils, the right to control the making of doctrine. You don't have to make the doctrine yourself, but you do have to be giving the ultimate seal of approval or not Mm -hmm. to whatever's going on. Uh, the right to interfere in very senior church appointments, the right to make um, laws uh, or rules and regulations uh, about all kinds of things, uh, about how priests should behave, uh, about how Christians should behave, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. We see all of that transfer from emperors, and it's still in Charlemagne's hand in the ninth century, at the start of ninth century, we see that transfer to the papacy by the middle of the 12th century, so 300 years later. But what's so interesting is that that process is not driven forward by ambitious people in Rome trying to take over the reins of power, or this is the bit that I found so interesting. What you actually see uh, is a whole series of North European churchmen faced with uh, a christianity a Christian Europe is getting bigger and bigger so more kingdoms become christian this is a this is the moment when Christianity spreads over lots of the landscape um We do have an emperor, we have Holy Roman emperors, but actually they're running not much bigger than a kingdom themselves. There's a whole slew of Christian princes. And what that means is that there is no center of political authority that is big enough to exercise uh, religious influence and authority over the entirety of that part of Europe, which is now Christian. Mm. So Christianity outgrows the size of the political structures that exist in that era. Um, Charlemagne has created in their heads this image that Latin Christianity should be a unity, but there is no king, no king of France, no Holy Roman Emperor, no prince who can provide sufficiently broad authority to do it. And it is these North European churchmen who basically take hold of and reform the papacy and turn it into the authority structure that they want, that they need to, to turn their vision of a unified church into um, reality. The key player uh, and the start of the great uh, progression towards practical papal authority is the man uh, Pope spoke the Knights, uh, who is a German noble in origin, comes from a German noble family, um, is a bishop of Toul, um, and is put in place by a Holy Roman Emperor to try and reform the papacy, which was in a very bad way, controlled by local Italian noble families who were enjoying uh, passing out papal lands to one another and all the wealth of that came. Um, uh, and But Leo had this vision that the papacy needed to be much more than that. It needed to uh, be leading Western European churchmen um, to new and better standards and a unified sense Of what good Christianity was, good Christianity both for its clergy and good Christianity for its laity as well. Um, And he's, you know, if you look at the key figures, so many of them are North European churchmen. And it's actually the willingness of these uh, educated, noble born, for the vast majority, uh, North European churchmen to invest the papacy with authority that gives it authority. Mm. That's So it's created by consumer demand in a fascinating way. It's not some cunning plot or plan hatched out of Rome. It's, it's actually, we need someone. We need an authority structure. The only place it can be is Rome. We'll make Rome that authority, and we will make it that. It's not that um, various Italian popes are thinking, oh, there's an opportunity here that's not what happens. it's so interesting,
0: yeah, yeah it is very very interesting uh so just a few questions here, obviously, there's a huge topic, but you can just give your uh, abbreviated thoughts you you actually don't talk much about the the schism of ten fifty four in the book you you mentioned it obviously i I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it here as well. uh you know, obviously, you know the schism of ten fifty four was the split between the Latin and Orthodox churches, which is still Split, right? We have the still split. Yeah, still split. There's always rumblings about them getting together, maybe, and but uh, that's very unlikely. (laughs) Um, Yes. Why the split, and why hasn't it been resolved?
1: Uh, The split is there uh, officially over whether the Holy Spirit is sent by both the Father and the Son. Uh, It in the West, the Latin Church. Uh, in in our version uh, of the creed, uh, we've added the words um, and the Son. So <laughs> the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. This is not what the Creed of Constantinople said in 382. Uh, that is added by Western churchmen in, in the 7th, 8th and ninth centuries. Um, so that's the official reason. Uh, a lot of it is the kind of the product of the crusading era where Latin Westerners uh, very colonially actually take over in the Eastern Mediterranean and regard uh, the Greek Orthodox clergy as inferior and therefore really irritate them. So (laughs) there's nothing nothing so irritating. the, the, The doctrine aside, I mean, we're coming up on a
0: thousand years ago. Yes. Yes I there's still split I mean, is it is it I mean is there political things? is there other doctrinal things? I mean I mean
1: it, it, what what really makes it is that uh, the this reformed papacy that's created by Western churchmen claims authority over yeah. the rest of the over the rest of the Christian world, right. uh, and in fact they they do sort out a compromise. Uh, on the procession of the Holy Spirit, as it's called, uh, at different moments. Uh, uh, Vatican II, I think they had one of these, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, they'd done one in the 12th century and another one in the 13th century. They'd come up with a deal because if you look at Greek church fathers, they do talk about uh, Christ in the gospel says, I will send my spirit. So, you know, you can mm-hmm. you can make it work. Uh, uh, say it perhaps shouldn't be... It, shouldn't have been put in the creed, but there's nothing wrong with thinking that. It's all right. Uh, But uh, the papacy, the reformed papacy, claims total authority over all other Christians. Mm -hmm. um, And that's unacceptable in the East. In the late Roman period, you had five equal patriarchs. The patriarchs were notionally um, senior supreme bishops who were sees of... Uh, communities that have been founded by one of the apostles. So Rome, obviously Peter and Paul. Uh, Alexandria, which is Mark. Uh, Antioch, and then they added Jerusalem, and they also added Constantinople as the new Rome. So <laughs> it's totally bogus. So anyway, uh, uh, Constantinople counted as a patriarch. That's why Constantinople has a patriarch. Uh, I mean, it's colossal nonsense. But there we go. Uh, no, apart, they, I think they said things like, Paul must have gone through Constantinople to get to Corinth. You know, (laughs) something like that. It's complete, uh, absolute cobblers from beginning to end. But never mind. We have five patriarchs and they were equal with one another. And that's the late Roman system. And emperors stood in authority over the five patriarchs, advised by them, but could appoint them. And only emperors could call councils and whatever. So when the... Uh, papacy takes over the power of emperors it claims the extra level of authority that uh, emperors had exercised in practice and it tries to exercise it and it during the period after the um, fourth crusade when the crusaders take constantinople then the papacy does exercise a kind of colonial authority over the or tries to over the Greek Orthodox church. And that's hugely resented. And it becomes the kind of a touchstone of of further resistance. So uh, basically the Pope would have to be willing to stop making that claim for this to be healed. Not going (laughs) to happen. You feel Pope Francis might, uh, but you know, how long, how long will he live and what will his successor be like? I, you know, i think he can see the issue i think he yeah. understands the issue he said some things hasn't he i can't remember exactly what he said There's but they do recently
0: yes yeah, recently yeah. yeah more recently he said something he's, he's very kind yeah. of i mean i'll give him credit i mean obviously i'm not religious but i'll give him credit i mean he does try to for his for his for as old as he is he does try to kind of be very forward-thinking for the catholic church so uh, uh, absolutely give i'll give him credit for that but, yeah 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 no, no. indeed um so, so again, real quick, much much has been been written about this. You mentioned the Crusades. Um, I guess the question I have is, is that in the context of this conversation alone, and obviously within your book, it's much more expounded upon. You, you've you've kind of stated that there's conversion conflict, conversion conflict. That there's always a lot of this, like you know. It's one, one, uh, one group is taking over another group or an area. And the, so, of course, the this, you know, deity or God or whomever, you know, helped to win the battle, et cetera. But most of the times people look at the Crusades now as a type of, you know, this was, you know, violent Christians, you know, <laughs> telling people, if you don't believe, you're we're going to chop your head off and, you know, kill all the women and children in the village. You know... And of course, all these things, some, you know, really barbaric things that happened during the Crusades, but is there something we're missing here? Or is there other parts of the picture here kind of give us the kind of just the the very general 360 holistic view of, I guess, the Crusades?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it it has that dimension, but it has some other dimensions too. Mm -hmm. Um, In part, it's about Uh, A very important dimension is finding a way in which Christian warriors can still be good Christians. Uh, In the early medieval period, when you're converting Anglo-Saxon England, we find ways because you know Anglo-Saxon elite is a warrior elite. That's what they do for a living. They can't they can't escape from that life. You can't go around condemning violence, and they didn't. So Christianity made its peace with the warrior community, if you like, in the seventh and eighth centuries. But by the 11th century, then we've got a much stronger sense of penance. Uh, we're putting, <laughs> we're reading the gospel properly, <laughs> you might say, in terms of turning the other cheek being actually a good thing to do. And the warrior profession uh, is becoming much more ideologically problematic. But of mm-hmm. course, they are still warriors and you can't, you know, they can't suddenly all become fund managers because there are no funds to manage. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have to find a way in which Warriors can find their way to heaven. Uh, and Crusade is part of uh, a papal reach out to certain warrior communities um to get them on board with the new patterns of piety, basically to do penance for the fact that they can't escape being a warrior, then actually being a warrior in the right way. Uh, is an act of penance, and crusades are penitential acts to go on crusade. Well, it was pretty bloody awful, I think, yeah. uh, to go on one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a it's definitely a dark period of of our, our history for us as as uh, humanity. So, uh, the final question I have for you uh, is: you've, you've spent, uh, you have spent a thousand years uh, it, talking about Christianity and its and its rise and how. Um, you know, as the subtitle indicates, you know, it's a triumph of religion. Obviously, there's still uh, between Muslims and and uh, Christians around the world they, they make up the most uh, people in, in religions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there it definitely, in that sense, just by numbers and, and all the influence is a is a triumph. But how do we understand again, going back to the the initial question I asked you about, is this this Early, the spread of early Christianity through forced and unforced conversion how How does again, this conversion framework help us understand uh, Christianity historically and even currently and um and to that end, how much uh, you know do you want readers from the book to 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 kind of get that from reading the book?
1: yeah, i you're asking something that goes right to the heart of why I kind of um undertook the project. Uh, Because the other kind of driver for me is, uh, it's much more obvious, uh, if you live in a European context, that actually, uh, it's a post-Christian world over here on this side of the Atlantic. Absolutely, you know, uh, the the last British census, the one that was just published a few weeks ago, for the first time, uh, less than 50% of the population uh, described themselves as Christian. And for that's the first time ever. And actually for a long time, what they've meant by Christian is Christian as opposed to anything else. They don't go to church. You know? Hardly anyone goes to church. And this isn't just the kind of Church of England Protestant thing north of the Channel. No one's going to the church in France, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this is... Uh, and, it, and I felt that the, the, de, the, the loss of uh, loyalty That Christianity has suffered from, or the failure to maintain loyalty through the 20th century uh, in the European context, hasn't fed back into accounts uh, of its rise. Because what that does is generate a much greater sense of contingency. The sort of first scientific histories of the rise of Christianity in the late Victorian, early 20th century, they're still written at a time when nearly everybody goes to church uh, to. Of one kind or another. When my grandfather joined the British Army uh, in 1909, uh, he said he was an agnostic, so they marched him off to clean the toilets. (laughs) And then the next week, he suddenly had this conversion to the Church of England (laughs) (laughs) because he much preferred their place of worship. It's It's a family story. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that was normal. And if you looked at it from that perspective, Christianity had won in the late Roman period, carried on winning, and in the great era of European colonialism is, of course, spreading worldwide. And you might feel the whole world is destined more or less under the auspices of European colonialism to move to a Christian persuasion or much more to do so. Whereas now, a hundred years on from there, we can see that the the spread of Christianity is no one-way street. And actually, it was always there because the disappearance of a Christian majority allegiance in the Islamic world is an earlier example of exactly the same process. People don't become Christian and stay Christian forever not always at least and uh, I felt that that contingency had not really come into uh, sufficiently into the story of Christianity's rise Uh, and it was uh, with that in mind to try and think about it as a more contingent process which clearly might not have worked in the past because it stopped working now so therefore that demands that we think about it again.
0: Yeah, no, no, well, you do it exceptionally well. Uh, the book is called Christendom, The Triumph of a Religion, AD 300 to 1300. Uh, it's uh, This book comes out in uh, in April, no?
1: Is it April everywhere? Yes, absolutely. I've forgotten the exact date. Not April the 1st, I don't think. that's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> bad omen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, uh, where can people uh, find yourself, you know, online or or where you're at, or what's the best place to to get at you or or to to get the book? All um, the right places.
1: Yep, uh, King's College London. Um, you can uh, find me. I I love uh, talking to people and responding to emails about the books. Um, if you. Type in Peter Heather, you'll find my email very quickly, uh, and I'll respond. I don't, I'm so old, I don't use other forms. You're better media. for it. You're better for it. <laughs> like, I always stay at least two technological stages behind the curve just to see what's worth, um, you know, <laughs> taking. On. But uh, I would love to hear from you, um, and, and would be very happy to respond. Yeah, that's great, uh, Peter. This was again—it uh, was a, such a lovely book to
0: read. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it was a—it was a wonderful um, conversation. I, I'm so thankful for giving your time and your wisdom. Uh, again, big, big thanks.
1: Uh, really appreciative of it. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely.